KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is part three of a mini series here on KYW News Radio In Depth called The Long Haul Learning to Live in a Lasting Pandemic. It's presented by Independence Blue Cross. I'm Carol McKenzie. We're taking a look at the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic. And for this episode, I sat down with Dr. Brian McDonough. He's KYW News Radio's medical editor. We talked about the new treatments that are being tested by Merck and AstraZeneca, plus what the future of this pandemic could look like, both for the winter and for the long term. I want to start by talking about treatments because there's some pretty big news right now, some good news. Uh, The first one I want to talk about is Merck. It's asking for emergency use authorization for its pill regimen. This is a regimen that can be done at home. It's for people who would have mild to moderate disease. And I'm wondering if you can tell us how this would work and what your thoughts and hopes are for this. Yeah, the goal with this is, at least initially in the studies, you would probably take two tablets twice a day for five days. You'd want to take it early on when you're first exposed. And the hope is it would reproduce essentially what they've been trying to do with the IV medication, you know, where people, if they get it, would have to go into an infusion center and have it done. This is something you could take at home. And the thought with this is that if you think about the flu, one of the reasons we've been so successful with the flu is we give people flu vaccine. But then if they come down with cases, especially uh, if they haven't had the vaccine or they come back and they're a certain uh, risk group, you can give them medications that take those symptoms and minimize them. And that's the goal. You'd actually be able to, again, keep people from going to the hospital or the ICU or worse. And of course, that's the thing with COVID that's been so devastating, the unpredictable nature of those high-risk groups who gets very sick. This would be another way to prevent it. And it would give it would give us kind of a weapon to use at those early stages that could be helpful. You know, it's been called, uh, I've just reading some reports on it, it's been called a game changer. I mean, it's been given kind of these highly positive terms uh, indicating that basically it could change just about everything. But, but yet it's only, I believe, what, 50% effective. So do you think that it's fair to look at it this way? Do you think it could truly be a game changer? Well, I think you're exactly right. The, the, the studies literally say that it, it shows or reduces the risk of hospitalization or death by approximately 50%. I think when they say game changer, they're saying, well, now we actually have some sort of treatment. If you think about it, everything we've been looking at with COVID thus far, by and large, essentially, has been avoidance, you know, social distancing, masks up, protection in advance with vaccines, which is clearly effective. And then if you were to be exposed and be in that high-risk group, they, we had treatments, but it was more treating the symptoms and doing whatever you can to try to help out. This is a way to begin the path to aggressively go after it. And remember, it's the same thing where they're coming out with a concept that seems to be working that concept is going to be also buffed up and continue to have improvements. And I think that's the other thing too, that, you know, as they learn more, they they, they know how this particular antiviral effect works and they they can use that. The other big news recently was from AstraZeneca. This is interesting. Um, It's really a preventative treatment for people who have suppressed or compromised immune systems who either can't get vaccinated or for whatever reason their bodies don't produce 
a, a robust enough um, response to a vaccine. They are also asking for FDA emergency use authorization for this. Can you explain how this treatment would work and who would be eligible to get it? Well, the goal of something like this is to essentially beef up the way your body will accept the vaccine and maximize the impact of it. Um, we know, um, by and large, that when certain people are on medications that uh, basically make their immune system less active, we do that because we want it to be less active because sometimes the immune system recognizes something as far and that's good for us. And and that's how you, you can run into all sorts of problems, everything from arthritis to various forms of cancer and things. So you try to back that off, that response. Well, that doesn't work well. Uh, another example, you're an organ transplant patient and you take immune suppressive drugs so that you don't reject that organ. Well, if you're at risk for COVID, that same drug that is helping to suppress the rejection of the organ won't let the vaccine work. So what this goal is, is it's trying to specifically target the way the vaccines work and allow them to do their job and essentially allow yourself to build that immunity in your body. I mean, and you're really getting into what are essentially really high-tech treatments. Um, and there's nothing good you can say about COVID, but if there's anything positive, I would tell you it's things have been rapidly developed because of the nature of this. You know, when you have four and a half million people in the world or 700,000 in the United States dying, you know, everybody's rushing to come up with whatever they can. So this would be a way to make the vaccines better for a group that really try to get vaccinated and, and it doesn't help them. Mm -hmm. So the, the advantage of these two, the Merck and the AstraZeneca treatments, are that they're in pill form or they can be given outside of the hospital the way I understand it. Because the other treatments, the antibody drugs, given after you've been exposed and you either need an IV or shot for those. And I, I wanted to talk about briefly monoclonal antibodies because we have been hearing a lot about that. What is it and, and how do monoclonal antibodies work? The best way I could say it is it's almost like supercharging your immune system. Uh, getting monoclonal antibodies actually infuse more of those soldiers into your body to fight the disease. So we, when we're exposed to something, we'll build antibodies. We build them over time. And that's how we fight infection. And all throughout our lives, we're building antibodies to all sorts of things. But because of COVID's aggressiveness, especially in certain people, you know, you might, you'll build antibodies, but it might be too late to, to really help you. These monoclonal antibodies supercharge your system and allow you to get it. The, the issue with them, of course, is you got to get to the person early, and you don't know necessarily if someone tests positive if they're going to get sick. So you don't want to just be rushing monoclonal antibodies and everybody tests positive, but you also don't have a lot of time. So what they've really done is they've they've targeted people who are you know who are very high risk or they show rapid symptoms and they use them. So that's kind of the the game they're playing back and forth. And again. You supercharge the antibodies. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know, which brings us back to the whole concept of, well, your best shot is getting that vaccine in the first place because then you have basically built those antibodies artificially through the vaccine and you probably wouldn't even need the monoclonal antibodies. Right. So these are not, instead of a vaccine, that's something we've been we've been hearing a lot of warnings from from the experts and the healthcare experts on this. These are not a substitute. 
And, and that's one of the things, you know, when we talk about the misinformation, you know, there's people coming out and saying, you know, for whatever reason, don't get a vaccine and you can always have these monoclonal antibodies. Well, you know, the monoclonal antibodies are not without concerns. The vaccines now, you know, we're over 6 million people. We're, it's being shown to be very safe. This is really the way to go because that prepares you and builds it over time. And it's no different than the vaccines. Um, you know, the same concept we've used for polio, smallpox, measles, and cerebella, all the way down the road. Um, it's the same concept, but for whatever reason, this vaccine has, uh, you know, generated more attention. But it really, um, the mRNAs are extremely safe. You know, I'm curious what you're seeing now in your practice, because we've been talking through this entire pandemic. Um, and, you know, you've, I'm sure you've had patients, I know you've had patients who have been resistant to getting vaccinated. One of the thoughts that occurs to me is people don't want to get these vaccines because they see them as experimental. And yet we have these treatments that are, you know, they're emergency use, really, but they're willing to take the treatments, but not willing to get vaccinated. And I'm, I'm wondering if you're still dealing with that and if you think this is kind of going to make things a little actually maybe worse in the short term. Well, here's the issue. I think a lot of things happened. Um, in my career, HIV and COVID were the two health conditions that you know gained incredible amounts of attention worldwide because of their very nature and the fact it affected so many people. And you think about it, they are the two conditions where politicians and others have weighed in. Uh, they don't weigh in on health normally, but they're weighing in on this because whatever reason, they see it as a potential gain or loss or whatever, and they get involved. And when you get people who aren't scientists involved and taking it out of the scientific realm, you open up the doors for questioning. You add social media where virtually everybody has a voice, checked or unchecked, and it's very difficult to tell who is an expert or not, and things can rapidly get attention. So when I talk to my patients, I say, listen, I don't know where you're coming from, and I, and I get that. I just want to talk to you professionally. And I think the person who said it best was my daughter who was talking to a friend. And, you know, she's in her, in her late 20s. And she said, I got the vaccine because my dad recommended it because I had a dad who maybe sled with a, with a helmet on, bike helmet on, because he was <laughs> over the top. And if he's telling me to take this vaccine, it's got to be safe. And that's what I tell my patients. I say, listen, I took it. I gave it to my family. I mean, there's nothing, I, I would have to be the most evil person in the world if I wanted to hurt my family. I said, so at least take that into it. And, I, and I'm saying it with no other secondary gain. And then the other thing I tell them is, I have seen people die. And I have seen people wishing they had the vaccine at the very end. And, and that sort of an image, you know, it, it breaks my heart to see that you see enough patients, you know, there's going to be other people in that group who are going to be down that road. And that's that's the source of frustration. So I can't wait for a treatment because that will reach a lot of people. But right now, the best thing you have is is the vaccines. And, and, and they're some of the most effective vaccines that ever have been made. And I looked at the United States statistics, despite the fact that we were the first, you know, we did war speed, we did all those things. I think we're now 52nd in the world for vaccine acceptance, uh, you know, for, for COVID. And, and you look at that and go, oh my gosh, it's, it's like, it's, it's a real problem because we're denying ourselves that help. And I'm wondering then as a doctor, the frustration, you know, you're experiencing and, and the heart 
heartbreak you've experienced and seeing people get sick. And and I'm wondering, you know, the the frustration you have or the difficulty you have or the stress you have in seeing somebody get sick and now you you're going to have these possible treatments, but you have to decide, like you said, there's no crystal ball really to know maybe who's going to get really sick. How do you handle that? How do you, on a patient-by-patient basis, decide who's going to get treatment and when they should get it? Because there's a small, a short window there. Well, the biggest question, I mean, obviously, we'll have to see as the, you know, the FDA gives us our own advice and we learn what to do. But we're also going to have to see when people get in. Like a lot of people, you know, it's just by very nature, you fight things out at home, you don't get in. We, we had that battle with people with chest pain, like, you know, get in, don't wait all weekend, you've damaged your heart. This is kind of the same thing. People are going to go, well, I don't want to go in, I, I, I think I'm going to stay home, and, and you have that issue. The other issue we're facing now, too, is as a result of what you talk about, it, the, the emotional side of it, if you look at any hospital, healthcare organization, they're down like 20, 30, 35%, and people... Uh, essentially, for lack of a better term, they're burning out. I mean, they're dealing with the emotion, they're dealing with things, and they just, at a certain point, are struggling with that concept. So you just think of everybody has COVID fatigue to begin with, and then if you happen to be in those areas where you're you're surrounded by it, that's an issue too. So this is going to have an impact on people who have emergencies for them or their families being able to get the healthcare services they need because there's going to be shortages, just like we're seeing shortages in supply chain. You're going to see shortages in hospitals and doctor's offices and, and everything because people are leaving and moving into different areas. That's that's a frightening projection. That's a frightening view of what's coming down the road. And I, I do want to talk about that in a moment, but I want to talk about first what we've learned, what you've learned about infection, many people think that a mild infection isn't dangerous. So now that you have more data, is that true? What have we learned about mild infections of COVID? I think if you're one of those people who had COVID and got through it and hopefully didn't have any of the long haul effects or any of the other issues, there's clearly a protection you get from natural exposure. Without a doubt. In fact, when they were talking early on, uh, you know, and they were talking about, well, once you get everybody exposed, we'll have, you know, herd immunity. Well, that works with a lot of things, but not something that kills at such a high level. And that's the problem. Like, there's a, a, a virus which attacks kids called respiratory syncytial virus or RSV. And this year, it's off the charts and it hit in the summer, not even the winter, because Last year, all those kids naturally who would be playing with each other weren't. They didn't build that natural immunity to it. And now they're being exposed to it all at once. And even in a a seasonal time when you never don't see it in the summer, you saw summer and fall, lots of cases because, you know, that natural immunity wasn't there. So there is a value for all of us to be consistently exposed to things and let our immune system kick in. But this one's different because the problem is a certain percentage of people, it goes really bad. And you can't just say, well, we're going to lose this many people to protect others. It's just the numbers are just ridiculously high. And there, there's a European study out that showed uh, deadly blood clots, people developing deadly blood clots, people who have mild infection. And that is on top of long hauler syndrome that we've been hearing about almost since the beginning of the pandemic. 
And I also just saw a report, and again, these are all early as we're learning about problems with the gray matter of the brain in certain individuals and that it's affecting the brain. And I mean, the virus is really nasty. Like you really don't want to get it. Um, and, and that's why I say to people, well, look, I know what COVID is doing and we may not have seen everything COVID can do. So given myself on the spectrum, I'll take the vaccine over you know, all the other potential issues of COVID. Because even if you get through it, um, hopefully it's fine. But, you know, you just wonder about other things that can occur. So do the vaccines then protect people from developing these more dangerous symptoms and the long hauler syndrome symptoms that we're seeing? What we're seeing is that is the case because even if they get it, the body gets it out of the system quicker. Like you could be exposed to COVID. And remember, The vaccines don't necessarily stop you from getting COVID. They stop you from getting sicker with COVID. So by having the vaccine, and now in the cases where they're talking about boosters, you could get COVID and you may have a bad day or two, but you're not going to go through each and every progressive step. It protects a significant number, I mean, a high percentage of people. So if you look at the real big picture is it's highly unlikely you're going to die if you get the vaccine or end up in an ICU. So those types of devastating effects can be avoided. And even if you get sick, you're probably not going to get to the COVID long haul issue. We're starting to see that. And then the other thing is there's a decreased amount of time you would be infectious because you get it out of your system quicker. So those who are around you are less likely to get it. So by getting the vaccine, you're protecting yourself and those around you at very little risk. What do you think is going to happen this winter when, you know, when we start going indoors, the the, the weather gets colder, we have the holidays coming up. Give us your projection. I think we're still in a rush against time to get people vaccinated. The higher percentage, we're getting more people vaccinated that is helping it definitely is the delta strain we see it starting to to dial back here my prediction if i were to say it is if you look at what happened in the south when people went indoors because it's hot we saw the unvaccinated parts of the country get hit incredibly hard the midwest the unvaccinated areas have gotten hit very hard the northeast should do better than the rest of the country because they have a higher vaccine rate when they go inside. So yes, you will see increased number of cases, but probably not to the extent that you would saw in, let's say, the South Carolina, Georgia's, Florida's, because you have a higher vaccine rate. It really all comes down to the percentage of population that's had, had vaccines. Yeah. And, and in the Northeast, at least, in the area, especially listening audience for KW, it's, it's a pretty good area uh, with, a, with a larger degree of protection in that regard. And I think that's a lot what Dr. Fauci and others are pointing to. And if you notice, they don't really predict past four weeks. I know Dr. Fauci got in trouble when he was talking about Christmas and those things, because I think what he was really saying is we have to keep looking at the numbers and see where they are. And you can actually track it. You know, the increased number of cases are going to lead to a certain percentage of hospitalizations and a certain number of deaths because... That, that, that's the way that it's so predictable. The virus is just, it acts the same way, just right across the board. So what do you think then about the flu? Last year, they warned us that the flu was going to hit hard, and that never 
really happened. And they're saying the same thing again. We're going to get hit hard by the flu. Is it? Do you think we're going to we're looking at a possible uh, twindemic this this year for real? Well, here's the thing. First of all, the flu last year, the reason we saw very few cases, and that was because people were separated. They were wearing masks. If you think about it, that was a period of time where people were, you know, essential workers were out. It wasn't as, you know, as crowded out there. To an extent, the world's like that now, but it's opening up. Um, I think you're going to see more cases of the flu this year than last year, without a doubt. I think where you're going to get is the confusion. Um, you know, people are going to come in with symptoms and you're going to be like, well, is this COVID? Is this the flu? Or is this just a respiratory infection that you get in the winter? Like all of those things are going to get confused. So that's one of the reasons why they're saying, well, let's do the best we can to get people vaccinated and um, get them vaccinated for the flu and COVID at the same time, you know, if possible. The other thing, and this is something which, again, we're going to have to see over time. We as physicians are always in a dilemma. Somebody comes in before COVID with the flu. It's kind of a similar thing. You want to get them started on the antiviral like as quick as you can. And you'd almost be like, well, I could do a, flu, a study for the flu. By the time I get it back, now they're more rapid. By the time I get it back, I might as well start the medication. You know, that's where I think the Merck drug is going to come into play. Like you asked that question earlier, will we just start giving it earlier to people if they come into the office who's symptomatic? And I don't want to weigh in on it yet because there's greater minds than me, but there is a part of you that would think, well, let's do it. But um, we also want to look at the safety profile of the medicine. We know we have a safety profile of the vaccine. It goes back to the same point. We know the safety profile of the vaccine because we've been giving it for quite some time. This new medication, we hope it's going to be safe, but we don't know the safety profile because it's newer. That, again, we go to the vaccine, we know it's the safest thing out there compared to just about everything else. But until we can get enough of the population vaccinated, you know, we spoke about herd immunity, which just doesn't, it, we're not anywhere close to getting that right now, well over a year into this pandemic. You know, at what point do we move into calling this endemic? And what does that look like? What does this mean for life as we knew it? I think you're going to, I mean, I've been saying this from the beginning, I think we're going to be probably having, you know, I'll say annual, but regular vaccines against COVID dealing with different strains and different things. And as long as the virus has fewer people to attack, it spreads slower. I mean, that's the way it does. The dangerous thing about this virus is, although it kills people, it's not like Ebola, which is horrific and killed everybody. Because it doesn't kill everybody, it stays in the community. So... The real answer is the combination of those who get it naturally and those who get the vaccines. And what we're all we're saying is the more people you can get the vaccine, the less, you know, disease and death you're going to get. And that's really what it comes down to. There will be new variants and some will be better or worse than others. What we're just hoping is that um, we can stay ahead of variants, you know, by tweaking the vaccine a bit. And so far, so far, it looks like that it will be able to do that. So I think we're going to be just kind of always being careful and watching the season, much like we have with the flu. And hopefully we get the numbers down. If you look at the flu, it's, it's, it's horrible to lose 36,000 people a year. But if you look at it, 36,000 is nothing compared to 700,000. You know, you hope you can control it and work on it with a combination of vaccine, common sense, and uh, medications. So we're always going to have to keep our masks handy and just 
It sounds like be prepared for, you know, I guess a fluctuating situation, particularly if you think there are going to be more variants. I mean, really, is this is this what we're going to be dealing with for from here on out? I think for the foreseeable future, yes. Um, you know, and it might to some extent. Remember, coronaviruses, the type of virus this is, they've been around forever. We just haven't had a coronavirus that's this aggressive. So we can't, you, you never, we have never been able to eradicate coronaviruses. What we just have to hope is this particular COVID-19 and its variants starts to become less aggressive. And, and that does happen I mean, in the viral world. It's really weird how things happen. But um, I think it's also probably an indication of we have to keep learning and keeping our eyes open on things to protect people. But then what I'm wondering is earlier you touched on this, a lot of burnout in the medical field, a lot of COVID fatigue. We're looking at shortages now. Look down the line. I mean, if we're going to be dealing with this for the foreseeable future and the medical field has already taken a hit, really, it's the the people that are in the medical field that are suffering that, you know, you, they're burning out, they're, they might be leaving, and, and maybe people aren't going to get into the field because of this. What is going to happen? What are the long-term effects of this and, and when it comes to medical care in this country? I think there needs to be, and it's hard because it all happened so fast, but greater attention for counseling those who are in those fields. I think there needs to be, you know, more support uh, for people and awareness, um, like what happens, uh, I use hospitals for a situation and, and it's across all the hospitals. They need to see a number of patients. Well, if you think about it, you have a group of people who are still not vaccinated and they essentially are flooding the ICUs. So they're in the ICUs demanding medications that aren't approved. Then other people come into the hospital who have other illnesses, but there's a backlog. They, they're in the emergency room or on a step-down floor, and people who normally could have been in the ICU or in another area of the hospital, they're trying to treat them there the best they can. And nursing and everyone's doing the best they can, but they're not critical care nurses. I mean, you just see how it backs up. And then if you go into an office, the doctor's offices used to have MAs or assistants or others. Well, there are people saying, I don't want to do that anymore. So doctors are bringing patients back themselves into their office and they're seeing a load of people. So it's, it's just kind of a system that already had been, uh, I would say for lack of a better term, it had been cut back a bit, it was lean. Um, and now it's a lean system that is being overloaded. So there's gonna have to be a lot of attention paid into that and, and support for those who are there. Yeah, let's just hope it doesn't break. Well, and you worry, and I think what you do is, and there's a lot of hospital and, practice leaders and organizations like the MA and you know, the nurses at groups, so they're all working and aware of this. But at a certain point when some people walk away, you know, they need a break. So I think there's things that, I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but the reality is you know, this is something that has been larger because it can be emotional as well for people. I mean, that's the thing. And, and people are trained to deal with things, but at, at numbers like that, it's, it's frustrating if there's nothing you know, to an extent, for some people, you can do at a certain point. And that's frustrating because normally in medicine, we usually have, you know, different tricks up our sleeves that can help. Dr. Brian, thanks as always. We appreciate it. No, no, it's my pleasure. Thank you. 
This is The Long Haul, Learning to Live in a Lasting Pandemic. It's a KYW News Radio in-depth special presented by Independence Blue Cross. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie. Thanks for listening.